Our explorer today is Brandy DeCarly, who's passionate about rejecting old rules and driving positive change in the world through innovation, compassion, and connection. This episode is brought to you by the Podcast Services Division at Lifestuff Media. Having your own podcast allows you to creatively reach all types of audiences, from clients to prospects, to your most loyal membership base. And by utilizing studio affiliates located around the world, coupled with quality remote recording capabilities, Lifestuff Media makes having a corporate podcast easier than ever before. Contact us for a no-obligation consultation at info at lifestuff.com or visit lifestuff.com to learn more. This is Life's Tough, but explorers are tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore, It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Uh, Greetings to you wherever you are in the world. Today we're going to take a little bit of a detour of what we normally think of exploration. If you've listened to this show, you've probably heard me speak of universal nonverbal languages such as art, music, dance, nature, and food. So let's talk a little about the history of agriculture or food production, which is essentially the history of civilization going back around 10,000 years ago. And I know that there's a romance to farming and people always talk about the good old days of sticking a seed in soil and watching it grow. But if you think about it, technology has always been the driver in farming. 6,000 years ago, the first wooden plows were invented. 5,000 years ago, irrigation began. 1837, John Deere invented steel plows, as well as a fashion statement that refuses to die. And in this century, of course, we use uh, lasers as guidance systems created 
to have driverless planting and harvesting machines. Yet despite all these technological advances, millions of people around the world still starve. And as we've all witnessed during COVID, that the supply chain of food has been at times broken. Our guest today is Brandy DeCarly. She's the CEO and co-founder of Farm in a Box. Welcome, Brandy from San Francisco. Thank you so much, Richard. I am very excited to be here. So, you know, just to, to, you know, right off the bat, uh, the name Farm in a Box, it it, it sort of evokes uh, different kind of thoughts. Uh, I know I was in Costco recently and they had these little um, gardens in a box and it was essentially four um, herbal plants that you could put in. Yours obviously is a much larger box. It's a much larger box and it's actually called Farm From a Box. And we did that because we're really farming outside of the box. So there really isn't any growth that's happening inside. Um, but the box is definitely on a much larger scale as we're using a modern shipping container as the, the housing structure for all of this technology. So what's the genesis of it? I know that, um, you know, despite living in San Francisco, you were working in East Africa. And I think that's, that's really where that whole idea came about. Uh, that's exactly it. Like all good adventure stories, it came about in a really, really non-linear way. Um, my business partner, Scott Thompson, and I were actually working on a project with the UN Habitat in Kisumu, Kenya. And we were building a youth empowerment center using shipping containers, modified shipping containers built around a soccer field to bring in the resources that the community was really lacking access to. Most of that was really grounded around you know, a small health clinic, a small school clinic, and all with this wrapper of sport. Uh, but what we found was really missing was food access. All of that's not going to matter if we don't necessarily have adequate, sustainable, stable, healthy food access there in the community. And we boldly, brazenly thought, okay, well, let's take this same plug-and-play deliverable model that a shipping container allowed but outfit it to be able to grow and sustain food directly there within the community. And that's really how the idea started. So, I mean, your background, was it in agriculture? Was it in farming? Did you grow up on a farm? No, no to all of those. Uh, no, neither of us are actually coming from an agricultural background, nor are we coming from a technological background. Um, but I, I think what we really saw is a problem that we had a solution for. And so we just jumped in. Um, in some ways that really benefited us because we were coming at it from a lens of newness uh, without necessarily having this idea of this is how things are done. So as soon as we had this idea, it's funny to think about now where we where we began with our initial concept to where we are now, where we're light years um, further developed. Uh, but we really really actively did our best to surround ourselves with much smarter people than we are um, that are really skilled in technology and agriculture to help us sort of midwife this concept into being. So I, I guess the um, what I've seen, I've been to East Africa quite a bit, to Tanzania and, and Kenya especially, and, um, you know, farming's tough there. You know, there's so many things that can, from droughts to insects to um, animals that might uh, trample their, their gardens, you know, wildlife uh, conflict. And so 
I'm just trying to get my head around. You're sending a shipping crate there that has um, that you've looked at their uh, soil and their environment and the type of crops they're going to grow. So when they get one of these shipping containers, how do they figure out how to use it? Um, and how do you even figure out which one to send? There, there seems to be a lot of, you know, events that have to happen right for this to be a success. <laughs> there are. You're absolutely right. And maybe what I can do is actually just go back a little bit and describe what the system actually looks like. Um, I'm really, really happy with the intro that you provided because that's really kind of the formation of the concept where we're really looking at farm from a box as a way of bridging um, ancient uh, farming techniques and much more ancestral regenerative farming techniques, but with technology to help make it much more efficient and modernized. So with outdoor agriculture, there are so many variables, as you just noted, soil type, water access, what different type of crop, where are you in the world that we're growing? And so we, we have to start off with an initial assessment and figure out, okay, how do we configure this system to be able to work for the location that we're going to and for the farmer's needs um, that we're really supplying for? And a part of that is, Part of that was actually our greatest challenge. How do we how do we design this system so that it's rapidly um, adaptable without making it a customized solution each time? And really, the way that we've done that is kind of looking at it through the uh, like a Swiss Army knife lens. How can we make sure that we are plugging in and plugging out the different components that are necessary on the ground? Um, we designed Farm from a Box. Let me give a description. So we know it's in a shipping container. We pre-install as much as we possibly can so that the system arrives basically locked and loaded. Every single unit is powered by off-grid solar. So it acts independent of any grid access um, and definitely works really well out in really remote locations. That powers a solar powered pump that can adapt to whatever the water access point is, which in East Africa is a river or uh, a bore well more often than not. Um, we also have drip irrigation to be able to really sustain the crop throughout the entire year and really extend the growing season while also conserving water resources. We have an internal solar powered cold storage unit so that we can really help mitigate crop loss that happens in field, um, which is upwards of 60%. We also have Wi-Fi in there and, and a whole data package to be able to really give us the eyes and ears on the ground to help help with training as well. So, so that's really what the system looks like. And once we tailor it to the location, we go on site and deploy it and train the community on how to utilize uh, and maintain the technology and, and really incorporate regenerative farm practices as well. I mean, that, that was gonna be a big question of mine. You know, say you go into Arusha, Tanzania, that's you know outside the slopes of Kilimanjaro, you know, they speak Swahili, Jumbo, Habariako, and you say Missouri Sana. And then it would seem that the um, the actual technology in many cases is well beyond their, you know, their technological knowledge to deploy. So how is it that you're able to maintain sort of that the parts are still working, the communication? Are, are, are you able to access from, you know, headquarters in San Francisco how that system is up and running? <laughs> well, Asante Sada, Richard, good question. <laughs> so 
One, we believe it's very, very, very important to make sure that we are training and giving access to technology. Um, and we really target women because there's a huge gap in women being able to really get this training and technology, especially in a lot of these underdeveloped areas. So step one, since we are not fluent in all of the different languages in the world, we, we make local partnerships for each one of these projects. And we really try to localize it as much as humanly possible. I'll give the example, since we're speaking of Tanzania, we did a project um, in partnership with the World Food Program in Kigoma. And for that project, we actually set up a local manufacturing hub directly in Dar es Salaam because we want to make sure that, again, we're localizing the solution. We're contributing to local jobs. And in terms of maintenance, the system is really built from local parts as well. And they're not something that is so specialized that it's being shipped in from Montreal or, you know, Italy or whatever it so happens to be. So we constructed the unit directly there in, in Tanzania, shipped it out to uh, Kagoma. And you're absolutely right. I mean, in this, it, we're working in the host community of one of the largest refugee settlements in Tanzania out in Nyagaruso. And this community has never seen technology like what we're bringing in. And we really just took the time to unfold the system with them, explain everything every step of the way. And when we go through the training, we just show them this is how it works. This is how you maintain it. Um, this is how uh, troubleshooting. And once we actually leave and go back to San Francisco, this is where the data system comes in. And so this is the importance of being able to modernize the technology that we're bringing into areas as well so that there's that overarching support system. Uh, the perfect example is there was one time the farmers of this particular farm had WhatsApped us in a, in a panic saying the pump stopped working, the pump stopped working. And we're like, well, it's a Grunfoss pump. It's the workhorse of pumps globally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And somebody's uncle from a nearby village was about to come dissect the pump. And we're like, no, no, don't touch <laughs> the pump. So from San Francisco on our data platform, we were able to see that the water flow had significantly decreased on the other side of the water filter. And because we were pumping from a river that was downstream of the refugee settlement, um, the seasonality of the flow just had a lot of silt in it. So the water filter needed to be flushed. So again, that's where the data system was able to really come in and ensure that the system is operating the way that it needs to, but provided those security bumpers in terms of ongoing training for the community as well. I mean, I, I wish I got that kind of technological support. Whenever I call, you know, some 800 number, you're, you're patched off. And after you've given your name and all that other stuff, it's like, you know, forget it. So how many of these have you deployed around the world? We have five now, and we're about to scale out on a very big level. Um, really accelerated by COVID, we, we saw the challenges of broken supply chains globally. So we ended up coming up with a new approach. Um, and we knew that by having this deliverable, clean tech powered independent infrastructure for localized food production, we could help solve that challenge. So what we're doing now, we have a number of really large scale projects coming up in Uganda, Liberia now is a new area that we're getting into outside of East Africa. Um, we're starting to get into Kenya and also uh, the US Virgin Islands where we're deploying these systems sort of like a string of pearls so that we can activate a whole new agricultural supply chain, all with this clean tech powered system to be able to really 
increase local growth and, and stabilize it at a local level. You know, it, it seems like a lot of these places and, you know, I've been to absolutely every one of those places you've mentioned. And I know that the, uh, the units that I've seen um, are, are not only aesthetically attractive, but I have to imagine well beyond any, you know, financial commitment, someone from those villages. So who are you partnering with and how are you making it cost efficient? Yeah, that's a really good question because we really, um, again, are so passionate, especially with climate change, of getting this system into the hands of those that, quite frankly, would not be able to afford the technology. So we've gotten really creative with how it is that we make the partnerships so that we're using blended finance models um, with large-scale partners like the UN. We're a supplier of the UN, um, working with large-scale foundations uh, we're now starting to get into working with large-scale agri-food companies that are starting to see um, challenges um, in their production lines in some of these areas that are really getting struck with already um, the challenges of climate change. So I think it's in creative partnerships to be able to do so, but even then we make sure that the ownership is within the community itself. Uh, we think that that's a really important component too, is that it's not a philanthropic gift that comes into an area, but we ensure that the community itself is run as an actual legal farm cooperative uh, and can grow from there in terms of livelihood and economic development. I, I mean, that's amazing. I, I have to, to admit, Brandy, there's so many things going through my head from the security of the equipment to, you know, on the other, on one side, and then the other side, the difference it's making in uh, farmers' lives. I believe uh, from uh, reading your literature, these are about two acre farms, which seem more in the scale of traditional farming versus what you may see on the West Coast of the United States. It started as two acres. And um, we did that intentionally because most farms in the world are run on two acres um, or less. And so we started from that position, but now what we have found by doing these different projects, especially working through the, co co pardon me, the cooperative model, we've really scaled that out because we really want the farmers to be able to grow more for both income and consumption. So we now have two different models, um, the traditional 20 foot model um, that serves anywhere between, you know, two to about four acres of land, depending on the crop. We're completely crop agnostic, so we can support anything. Um, we now have a 40-foot model that can scale out to 10 acres of irrigated, thirsty vegetable crops and 30 acres beyond that if we're including grains and such as well. So we can now go anywhere between that 2 to 30-acre mark, which really gives a lot of flexibility with the farms that we're serving. You know, Brandy, you mentioned that you do not come from an agriculture or necessarily even a technology thing. So, you know, kudos to you, how, however you've been able to figure it out with uh, your partner, Scott. But there's got to be a bit of a personal journey too, because there's one thing looking at a map of Tanzania, and there's another thing, and I've been there when people have literally put in PVC piping and turned on a faucet, and what a difference that makes. So, you know, what's been the personal journey on this project from the idea I have to the lows of trying it to get it done to success. Oh boy, that has been probably the greatest adventure. <laughs> has been the greatest adventure um, because very, very similar to the hero's journey, we, we've we have 
gone through these rifts. We have met incredible people along the way that have, have helped us and, um, and we continue to learn. I mean, when we first started this, we really didn't, we really didn't have an idea of the challenges that we were going to face in doing this. When you might we, never when we have done it. With, you might never exactly, have. Exactly, exactly. We would have had no idea the mountain that we were about to climb. Um, going back to when we had the first concept uh, and when the seed was planted through that project in Kenya, the seed was planted, but we didn't actually dive into building Farm From A Box yet. We had uh, a consulting company called Humankind. And when we were going through this consulting company, we would work with environmental think tanks. We were working with um, archaeologists in the Mayan Biosphere Reserve. And we were just in this soup of knowledge um, and really working with some of the world's experts in uh, sustainable agriculture and renewable technology, um, ancient practices that we could learn from. And so we took all of that in until we finally got to the point where we just decided there's too much potential. There's too much potential for this. And we, we really need to dive in. From that point on, um, we, we, we sort of closed our consulting company, dove in full time into Farm From A Box. And that's when the real adventures um, started happening. Talk about challenges. Uh, I mean, one, one story aside, we, I used to volunteer at the beginning years uh, at a food bank um, in Bayview in, in San Francisco every Monday. And we were so slim on funds that as a volunteer at the food bank, I'd be able to bring home a bag of groceries for myself and my business partner. And literally, there was a time that that was the food that we also had because we were raising funds. We hadn't done this before and we were learning. Uh, so those are the slim years where we joke about living off of plums and we would take, take a piece of bread and just wave it in the air in San Francisco Bay and think it was seasoned by salt air. So, uh, you know, some of those stories are the ones that we look back at now fondly, um, but that really gave us the, the, the strong steeled um, belief to make sure that we continued to go through every challenge that we ended up having. And originally, we actually didn't start off in Tanzania. We started off in Ethiopia um, and working in the Rift Valley. So the idea was that we would have dual pilots, uh, one in California, close enough for us to be able to really kick the tires, um, and another one in the area that we had really planned to serve. Uh, and in that case, it was working with a women's cooperative in the Rift Valley of Ethiopia. So. We have gone through so many adventures uh, through this, and we've learned so much uh, with every place that we've deployed in. And every every place has had its own unique challenges. You know, you mentioned the uh, Rift Valley of Ethiopia. I spent some time in the uh, Afar region in the Danenkil Depression, which uh, for people who don't know exactly where that is, that's where the ancient Roman salt mines were. It's below sea level. It's considered the hottest place on the earth. And for women who live there, the idea of just bringing water to their family is backbreaking. You see dehydrated pregnant women, all sorts of things. So there's got to be an element of, yes, we've figured the technological aspect, but we're looking at faces or lives that we are changing in, in better. I think my, my wife calls it doing well by doing good. Yes, and your wife is absolutely, absolutely right because the human lens is the most important lens. Everything else just 
is designed to serve that. And when we look at women and water access, we look at, quite frankly, the exposure to violence that they deal with as well, in addition to uh, the backbreaking work that it is. So um, it's always important First and foremost, that we do not come into these areas thinking that our Western ideas are the way to do it, um, but we really go in and ask questions and learn and again, tailor the system to make sure that it's going to work for the community that we're serving. Yeah, I, I think that that's a very good way to go. And I also want to tell the audience how you and I met. You received, you and Scott have received an award. It's called the Explorers Club 50. And the, and the slogan is, 50 people who are changing the world that the world needs to know about. And I'm not sure when you started this whole project that you would think of yourself as an explorer. No, well, that's not entirely true. I've always thought of myself as an explorer, but in my dreams, <laughs> in terms of, of really being able to be involved in the Explorers Club. I remember on our first, um, on our Ethiopian deployment, I, I bought this sort of army jacket and I sewed Explorer and National Geographic on my arm because I just felt like th th these were my dreams coming true of really being able to get out there and get my hands in the soil um, and do what it was that uh, we, we believed to be important, especially, especially now. Brandy, I, I, I really, um, in, in the moments we have left, I, I wanna thank you because I think there's one thing about having a dream, starting a dream, but, I think there's gotta be a sense of satisfaction. And I know there's a, a, a large degree of gratitude on my part when I see somebody who um, evolves their form of thinking of, you know, not just making money or not just doing something cool technologically, but doing something, investing in something that changes the lives of our fellow humans for the better. So I'd like to thank you for that. Thank you, thank you. That feels really, really um, beautiful to receive, and uh, it's it's meaningful uh, because it's it's definitely been a part of our journey, and we want to continue to keep our eyes wide open as we go in with each community and be able to really bring um, bring the knowledge from those that we're working with into our system, into our approach as well, and certainly not assuming that we know everything because we do not. Well. <laughs> We'll, we'll leave it on that. Brandy, thank you so much for being a guest on Life's Tough, Explorers are Tougher. I, I wish you the best of luck. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Every great expedition has to come to an end, but that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.